Those Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday celebrations were this year, amen? Were those, were those servings, of, uh, servings, boy, I got food on the brain, try that again. Were those services, there's a fine line between services and servings, isn't there? Were those services a blessing to anyone? I know they were to me. You know, we spent the whole weekend, last weekend, really talking about this concept of what I called God dropping by, right? On Sunday, God dropping by. And by the way, while he did this, how he managed to defeat death in the process while he was here. But now the question stands, it's sort of the challenge for us today, and where we want to head this morning is, keep you in suspense there, one week later, after our celebration is over, and after our relatives have gone home, and after another week of grocery shopping has commenced, because let's face it, you probably ate all the food in your house last weekend, anybody in, in that boat? I'm going to use this hand if I'm raising it so you know it's... You know, after all the Easter eggs that were buried under the front steps and around the back deck and up some trees have been located by those little ones, what's next? What do we do? What do we do a week after Resurrection Sunday celebration as a church is over? It's a good question. Uh, someone has written online, a common danger the day after Easter for us is that we go right back to business as usual. It's almost like the celebration of the proclamation of Christ didn't happen, right? Maybe it felt like a blur again, another run of holidays, or, or maybe you, you leave for vacation the day after, or maybe you just go back to your regular life. You've got uh, problems to solve, you've got appointments to keep, you've got emails to answer, you've got things coming up, you've got to think about what's next. To quote the 20th century philosopher Scooby-Doo, maybe you take a fiesta siesta. We've moved on. The proverbial ham steak and deviled eggs have all been eaten. That's dinner choice at my house, by the way. Might tuck that away. But the party doesn't have to be over. It doesn't have to be. We don't have to move on mentally, spiritually. No, my prayer for us as the church seven days later, that we continue to carry on the good news, the excitement of Resurrection Sunday with us day by day. Guess what? Our God still isn't dead. Amen. Our God is still definitely alive. But how do we keep that going? Because we're people, we like to go back to what we do after what we do is done. Did that come out right? The world keeps turning. But perhaps we can learn a little bit from where the Bible goes next. This morning's message, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Jesus has risen. Scripture says in the Gospel of John, Mary Magdalene has announced the disciples. She's seen the Lord, and at this point, the disciples are actually locking their doors. They're uh, fearful of the religious leaders coming after them. God drops by, Jesus greets them, shows his followers the piercings in his hands and in his sides. And this morning we're going to focus in on the response of one disciple in particular. Turn with me there, we heard the text earlier, John chapter 20, verses 24 to 29. Let's read all about what was next for one believer. text says this, verse 24, now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. We need to note that. He was not with them. 
So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails, place my hand into the side, into his side, excuse me, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him. This is my favorite part of the text. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. How do you think Thomas is weak? went since Resurrection Sunday. Kind of food for thought there. But regardless, there's a couple different choices that can be made in responding to the resurrection of Christ. A week later, as time marches on. Choice number one, our first choice is to remember, like some of the disciples, we've seen, we've experienced the risen Jesus. And one week later, we're going to press on. We're going to continue to respond in obedience and in faith. Monday morning, we've recovered from eating 20 pounds of Easter ham. Turn to your wife and say, Sheila, I sure hope this preacher talks about gluttony soon. He needs to. Is it possible we begin to forget to remember the lamb? It was back to the daily grind. When, when, when we're going off to do the things we need to do, on with work, off to vacation, do we settle? Do we settle comfortably again into the mindset of the previous Sunday? What do we do now? What's next? For the disciples, for many of the disciples, after the resurrection, we've seen the Lord. This was very much on their minds. Uh, one commentator notes what actually happened at the resurrection is that the disciples experienced the presence of Jesus in a way that transformed them transformed them. Get this, it changed them, transformed them from a group of sniveling whiners into healers, into preachers, organizers, powerful advocates for the Lord's justice and compassion. He continues, the disciples began to stand up to their culture at the very cost of their lives, welcoming slave and free, Jew and Gentile, poor and rich. These guys began creating communities of sharing, of doing life together, as, as difficult and as countercultural then as they are today. He concludes, the disciples experienced the risen Jesus. They were changed. They were changed. We need to remember this transformation that occurred to remember that the disciples were now part of a new way of doing things. A new way. What was this new way different than the old way? If you've got your Bibles open there, look back with me in verses 21 through 23. We didn't highlight this this morning, but we'll go there quickly. Just follow with me in the text here. Jesus passes on to his disciples this, this way of grace. This grace, initiated by the Father, verse 21, passed on through the Son. What happens here? As the Father has sent the Son, the Son will send the disciples. 
as the Son had been full of the Spirit, the Spirit is now going to be received by the disciples. Verse 22, and here's the thing. The keys of the kingdom in the form of the gospel are now passed on through the disciples. Verse 23. These disciples, full of the Spirit, and the means and the message of grace for the world surrounding them. It didn't end with the disciples. Had no place for doubt. This was the new way of doing things. There's no place for doubt. They were part of a God-given mission to the world. And at his ascension, if you remember, Jesus would remind his disciples, here's the mission. I'll be with you until the end of the age. So this now means the day in, day out of a Christian's life would no longer reflect the whims of confusion and uncertainty, but of service. Look what happened. Look what happened. Because of these first few disciples, because they were people of faith, 2,000 years later, there's a couple billion Christians on this planet. Look what happened. People got busy. People saw the Lord believed. And so if you and I, if we too have experienced Jesus in our lives, following their example, what are we to do now? What are we to do now, brothers and sisters? See, there's this old way. There's this old way of living in doubt and uncertainty. Or is this the new way, following the call that Jesus gave us? John 20, 21, we're sent to others. There's far too much of an attitude that says, what do we do now in the church today, isn't there? Far too much. And a week after Resurrection Sunday, excellent timing for a reminder of our mission, of why we're here, of what we're doing next. Now, what does this look like? What does this look like for us in the real world, for people of faith today, for Christians who are called to send the good news of Jesus to the world? One author writes, this past week, I was getting my oil changed. And I had a chance to, to present the gospel to the guy in the waiting room with me. For me, waiting rooms are the best places for evangelism because the people are sitting there with nothing to do. like to interject, sometimes it feels like days. He goes on, the oil change waiting room has been fruitful for me. It assures me that a minimum, at a minimum, I'm going to personally share the gospel every 3,000 miles. How about us? Part of this new way of doing things. Are we people of faith? I think sometimes we think we have to be called to serve in Guatemala, but that's not the case. Do you share Jesus at the local oil chain shop? Other places you go as a Christian, as you always go. According to Jesus himself, when we, when we sign up, when we sign up as his followers, because he is risen, we also sign up to celebrate the resurrection one week later, today, in our words, in our actions, in our attitudes to others. How about our words and our actions and our attitudes? Do we continue to reflect the God we serve? 
This morning when you got up, were you just as excited that he has risen when you woke up today as you were last Sunday? Or are you still shouting, Hosanna and hallelujah? Or are you just feeling sort of lost again and waiting for Mother's Day service to get here? What song do we sing one week later? In 1986, gospel singers Larnell Harris and Sandy Patty went to the top of the gospel charts for the contemporary Christian hit, I've Just Seen Jesus. Do you remember that song? What an incredible title that is. I've Just Seen Jesus. Just Seeing Jesus. I don't care what, every, what anyone else tries to start. Just Seeing Jesus is the real revolution. It's the real revolution for the world. It's a thought that changes lives, saves souls the whole world over. The proof is in the pudding 2,000 years later. Amen? And so my prayer is that we don't just settle. We don't just get bogged down, disappointed, caught up in the drudgery, forgetful because of the work of sharing our faith in Jesus. There's an old story told of a young salesman who, disappointed in his sales figures, shared with his manager, I guess it proves you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And his manager replied, Son, your job is not to make him drink. Your job is to make him thirsty. The job of the faithful, of a Christ follower, is to continually let the dying world around us know that, hey, living water exists. Living water exists. It's for real. And this is choice number one in how we will continually respond, responding in faith after the resurrection, continuing in obedience to Christ. Amen? That's, that's number one. I think you know where I'm going with our second choice. Number two, instead of following in obedience, the other choice we can make is, is to shrink away. Shrink away from Christ. This is where this word doubt comes in. We respond to what we've heard about our Lord in doubt. In our text, Thomas tells the other disciples after the resurrection, he just wouldn't believe their testimony about it. Verse 25, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side. Thomas wanted physical proof that Jesus was alive. And so eight days later, actually says in our text, verse 26, like a group gathered for a, a post-Easter sermon, the disciples were present with, G with Thomas, who had missed Jesus the first time around. And all of a sudden, the Bible tells us, Jesus, Jesus drops by, verse 26. You notice in the text, John points out the doors were locked, and yet somehow Jesus came in and stood among them. That could maybe put to rest some of the doubt in our minds about who he was, that he was there. Verse 27 continues, Then he, he is Jesus, he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Then verse 28, Thomas answers, My Lord and my God. And, and it kind of makes me think, maybe Thomas had been sitting around thinking about this for a few days, you know? Makes me wonder. Makes me wonder how he'd felt about this resurrection story. Now, here's the thing. We see a doubting Thomas complex happen all the time in our world. People who want to see the things of God before they'll believe them. They want to see it before they believe it. 
And sometimes people among us don't just disclaim certain facts about God. Maybe it's his existence altogether. I was in an online debate with an atheist acquaintance of mine who shared with me the following, I wish I could believe in God, but I can't. There's no use trying to change my mind. It's not going to happen. And it's interesting, though, how this simple phrase, I wish I could believe in God, betrays the agenda of the non-believer. The individual seems to imply, like Thomas, that believing before they see is the right thing to do. They know this, yet they refuse. Like Thomas the disciple, do we have a hurt or hang-up or inconsistency somewhere that reinforces our doubt about God? This happens. This, how, this happens often among those filled with doubt. Astronomer and astrophysicist Carl Sagan wrote, The idea that God is an oversized white male with a flowing beard who sits in the sky tallying the fall of every sparrow is ludicrous. If by God one means the set of physical laws that govern the universe, then clearly there is such a God. How much easier to be a person of doubt than of faith, isn't it? How much easier? Another uh, atheist evolutionary biologist, Richard Dawkins, once, once claimed he was, quote, willing to change his mind in the face of new evidence of God. However, Dawkins also argued that the process of evolution already, do, already functions as a, quote, automatic blind watchmaker of sorts. Makes us think maybe atheism itself is a religion, right? The universe is God, perhaps? We have a world full of doubting Thomases that demand to see God in the flesh before they believe him. Demand. Comedian Ricky Gervais once quipped, the burden of proof is on the believer. You started all this. And this is the world of doubt which surrounds us. For so much disbelief, we may wonder, what makes the faithless so caught up in talking constantly about something they don't seem to be convinced even exists? That's kind of strange. But I believe we're in big trouble if we challenge God to prove himself to us. We can look at 1 Kings chapter 18 and look at those prophets of Baal. God owes nothing to his enemies, does he? But when we look at Thomas, we don't see an enemy of God. We don't see an example such as uh, someone that has an agenda against him. We see a Christian disciple. We see a skeptic, though, and we see one whom Jesus obliged by fulfilling a specific request in verse 27. Thomas initially doubted God, perhaps not at the level that could have been, but he had doubt. And Jesus says we're blessed when we believe the truth about him before we can see it in verse 29. But here's the thing, and this is what I find so interesting when it comes to the grace of our God. Jesus wanted to remove any doubt from Thomas's mind on the subject of the resurrection. Don't you love that? In his mercy, Jesus knew what these men had been through. We notice, and we talked about this a little bit last week, Thomas, like the others, intimately had been acquainted with Jesus. Let's think about the circumstances here. Thomas had witnessed all the miracles. He'd heard all the prophecies personally. The doubt that Thomas was experiencing in the face of the heartbreaking loss of the one he loved is not unlike that which we could have today. 
And then he had even missed what the others had experienced. So what's interesting about doubting Thomas is maybe it's more fair to look at him as uh, something else besides stubborn Thomas or hampered by agenda Thomas. Because if I put myself in his shoes, it's likely I'm going to find I've been there before. Last week, I, I asked a similar question. Have you ever felt a drop in your faith? Have you ever had moments or seasons of doubt due to heartbreak? Two deaths in my immediate family when I was a small child may have not made me an atheist, but I can definitely tell you there were some troubled years that followed. By the time I was out of high school, I needed more than just a few nudges by uh, the risen Christ, or at least I felt like I did. And you know what? His mercy came through. His mercy came through. God dropped by. But here's a troubling statistic for you, and please take this with you and pray on it. According to one council on family life, 88% of children raised in evangelical homes across this nation leave the church by age 18. 88%. That's 9 out of 10 of the average Christian kids of this generation aren't going to remain Christians in adulthood. That should terrify us. And I was one of those nine myself, but by the grace of God, the Lord obliged me like he did Thomas, his child in doubt, and I could again respond in faith to him. We sang that song last week, you asked me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. Once in a while, our hearts are going to sink, aren't they? Think about when Christ ascended. Some of the disciples struggling, struggling with doubt, Matthew 28, 17. And we're talking about a moment when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is literally rising into heaven before them. And the word says some of them have doubts. Have doubts. John Calvin once said, we cannot imagine any certainty that is not tinged with doubt or any assurance that is not accompanied by some anxiety. Those are heavy words coming from a Calvinist, which I assume John Calvin was. Little theology joke there for you. But what do we do about it? What do we do about it? What do we do in our times of doubt, in our moments, in our seasons? Well, what did those first followers of Christ do? Here's a hint they didn't just run home, turn off the uh, phones, shut everybody out, and binge Netflix. Acts chapter 1, verse 12 tells us immediately they went to Jerusalem and devoted themselves to prayer, devoted themselves to one another. They kept under Christ's mercy, the church could grow because they helped one another through the time of doubt. In spite of the doubt, maybe because of the doubt, 1 Thessalonians 5.11, they understood that the body of Christ needs to be the example, sometimes the proof of Christ, so that so many of the spiritually weaker and worldly-minded among us are desperate to believe that that exists. So if you're a fellow faith struggler like me, do you think that you can walk by faith, not by sight? 2 Corinthians 5.7. That's really the question for today. Because there's, there's these old ways of the world. We can't live and serve as a Christian for long if we're still going by them. It's not going to work. Only believing in what these two eyes are seeing. Or if we sink into a, a season of spiritual apathy because, you know, Easter's over. 
We have to make the choice. Faith or doubt. I recently read a, an illustration on Facebook. I feel is appropriate here. Uh, the author is unknown. It goes like this, quote, An old Cherokee told his grandson, My son, there's a battle between two wolves inside us all. One is evil. It is anger, jealousy, greed, resentment, inferiority, lies, and ego. And the other is good. It is joy, peace, love, hope, humility, kindness, empathy, and truth. The boy thought about it and asked, Grandfather, which wolf wins? The old man quietly replied, The one you feed. I'm not trying to perpetuate any old Indian legends about wolves. I do believe the sentiment is biblically sound. If, if you feed your faith, your doubt cannot win out against it. And what Jesus says in our text is, is all too clear. Think about this. The apostle Peter, who saw Jesus often with his own two eyes, writes 1 Peter 1, verses 8 and 9, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. At the time this was written, the belief was not hand in hand with the law. And Peter, Peter surely knew the struggle between faith and doubt all too well. Remember Matthew 26, his denying his Lord while sitting in the courtyard? Oh, that never happened, Lord. He'd never do that. I'd never do that. Peter knows what Paul echoes. Our faith isn't determined by what we see or by us at all, but by Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12, 2, the founder and perfecter of our faith, author and finisher, some translations have. I'm thankful for this. Although the church may represent him, Jesus Christ remains the same today and forever. Amen? And so no matter how much I, I, I fail Jesus, no matter how much I'm going to fail Jesus, I will still be all in for Jesus. He was all in for me. And I'd like to think he, he thought a little bit about doubting Thomas as well. And every single one of us doubting Thomas's. There's that old poster, maybe some of you remember, you know, does he love us this much? We'd better believe. We'd better believe it. Because every single one of us has been a doubting Thomas at some point in our faith journey. Question being, how do we let the faith grow long after we've seen that Resurrection Sunday go? And how do we, how do we keep from settling back into business as usual? Because that's not easy. Time marches on. Author Dan Reland offers this, whether it's Resurrection Sunday or another day, a week, or six months late, later. Here's a suggestion. Take some time. Prayerfully spend time. Intentionally spend time, whether you feel like it or not. Especially if you don't. Reflect on your own journey of faith with God. Intentionally reflect. Consider how far you've traveled with your Savior. Consider the roads you've been down. Remember what he's done for you. The transformation you've experienced in him. See, we get our faith to grow when we act on the faith we have. How do we do that? We remember the promises of God. That's why throughout the Old Testament, God reminds his people to remember Passover this has continued through our time at the table each week. Remember God's promises and then 
Be thankful. Be thankful. Thank God. Thank him for all he did. Thank him for the things that you could see. More importantly, thank him for the things you couldn't see. Ephesians 6 talks about the spiritual, spiritual world happening all around us, things we don't want to see. We should be thankful that we don't have to see what God does before we can believe in it, but we do need to understand that God has been at work and that he'll keep working on us till kingdom come. Amen? Jesus is faithful to us, and there's no doubt about that. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, as we come to you today, we're so thankful. We're so thankful that for what you have done through us as, as individuals, what you've done through us as your church. Lord, I pray that we would continue to, to intentionally reach out to you. That we would remember day by day that we've been sent on a mission, a mission of faith, a mission to extend that faith to the world. Lord, we know there, there are going to be times that that won't be easy. We know the devil is, is, is in this world. We know that he, he seeks us. He seeks to devour us. Lord, help us remember in those times of doubt, in those times when we, we demand to see, we demand to have understanding of what you're doing. Help us to remember that you keep your promises and you're faithful. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you've given us this timeline by which we can, we can actually see your mercy and your grace and love for us in action. Lord, I also pray that during those times when, it, when it's difficult for us to understand what you're doing, that we would remember your love for us we would remember that you are still our Lord. You are still our God. Lord, we live in a world of doubt. Lord, we know we live in a world in which we are being attacked. Lord, we know the spiritual warfare surrounds us every day as your people. Help us to be strong in your word, strong in your spirit, and willing to go as you've gone before us to that cross. Lord, we, we come to you and, and we're sorry for those times of doubt in which we've chosen to, to deny you, to go the other way, to talk or to, to, to be like or to respond like the world. We know only your words remain. We know only your words will never pass away. Help us to 
stand firm upon them. Above all, Lord, we, we thank you so much for the reminders that we have this time of year. We can look at the cross. We can be remindful of that empty tomb. And that we can keep it fresh on our minds to go to a world that needs to hear that message as well. We praise you for all that you are, for all that you do. In that holy name of Jesus, we pray, amen.